0: Hello, my friends, and welcome to another moment, a Black History Moment with Bo. And I am so proud to say that we are entering our eighth season. And our seasons consist of 20 stories about people and places and events. That means that in the library of Black History, History Moments with Bo, we have 160 stories, which is damn amazing. And we're going to keep going. We're going to keep giving you stories. I want this library to grow until the numbers are in the thousands, with every one of them being just as meaningful, just as educational as the one you heard before. My friends, I cannot stress it enough that this is how we teach our children because this is how they learn the truth and our history, not the lies that was taught to us. You see, our ancestors had no choice but to accept the lies that were beautifully forced upon them by deceiving enslavers, but if you're walking around today with a computer in your pocket still believing those same lies, then you're a damn fool. The world today, as I speak, is so upset because of what the Supreme Court is doing about abortion. Every media in the world is just going crazy. And what I have to say to them is, what did you expect? These people are oppressors. And it's hard to relinquish that position when you've held it for so many hundreds of years. And the white people that are caught up in it are just collateral damage. You see, we know what this movement by the Supreme Court is all about, just as we know what what removing the polling stations is about. My friends, it's about us, and it's especially about black women. We are becoming, in other words, too uppity, but there are too many of us that are just Accepting the way things are going along just to get along. You see, my friends, now is the time to make some noise. And what makes this so jubilant is that we have the media and a lot of whiteness behind us. It's true. They are aiming their guns at us. But they are hitting a lot of their kinfolks also. Here's the thing, welfare or Planned Parenthood was not meant for their folks, but they got caught up in it and they took full advantage of it. For years, they talked about us on welfare when most of the welfare recipients was whiteness. Do you see Law and Order? there is nothing but disorder and instead of law there is the illusion of security it's an illusion because it's built on a long history of injustice racism criminality and genocide of millions many people say that it is insane to resist the system but actually it is insane not to Today, we are going to slip into darkness and learn a little something about the Freedmen's Colony of Roanoke Island. Freedmen's Colony was founded in 1863 during the Civil War after Union Major General John Foster, commander of the 18th Army Corps, captured the Confederate fortifications on Roanoke Island. Off North Carolina in 1862. He classified the slaves living there as contraband following the precedent of General Benjamin Butler at Fort Monroe in 1861 and did not return them to Confederate slaveholders. In 1863, by the Emancipation Proclamation, All slaves in Union-occupied territories were freed. The island colony started as one of what were 100 contraband camps by the war's end, but it became something more. The African Americans lived as freedmen and civilians. They were joined by former slaves from the mainland, seeking refuge and freedom with the Union forces. They were paid for their work and sought education along with their children. As commanding officer of the Department of North Carolina, in 1863, Foster appointed Horace James, a congressional chaplain, as the superintendent of Negro affairs in the North Carolina district to supervise the contraband camps and administer to freedmen. James was based at New Bern, where he managed the Trent River contraband camp. James believed the Roanoke Island Colony was an important experiment in Black freedom and a potential model for other freedmen communities. Freedmen built churches and set up the first free school for Black children here and they were soon joined by northern missionary teachers who came to the south to help the effort. There was a core group of about six teachers, but a total of 27 teachers served at the island. As the war went on, conditions became more difficult at the crowded colony, whose residents suffered infectious diseases. In 1865, President Andrew Johnson ordered the return of all property under his Amnesty Proclamation, and the lands cultivated and occupied by the contraband camps were returned to owners. The freedmen were not given rights to their holdings in the colony, and most left the island. Its soil had proved too poor to support many farmers. In later, 1865, the U.S. Army directed the dismantling of the three forts on the island. By 1867, the colony was abandoned, but about 300 freedmen still lived there independently in 1870. Some of their descendants live there today. Long used for fishing camps by varying cultures of indigenous people, Roanoke Island was first colonized by an English explorer in 1584. Sir Walter Raleigh tried to settle people there to found a colony on what is now American soil. Raleigh sent a hundred men to Roanoke Island. The settlement was unsuccessful and abandoned within a year. By the mid-1600s, English settlers colonized the island and established a permanent settlement. They gradually tried to develop plantations using imported African slaves as labor, but the soil was rather poor. The island produced some commodity crops. When North Carolina succeeded from the Union in 1861, the Confederacy made plans to fortify Roanoke Island to protect the bay and inland waterways. By that winter, the army had built three forts, although they were relatively weak and too small for the number of occupying troops. On February eighth, 1862, the Union General Ambrose E. Burnside easily captured Roanoke Island from Confederate General Henry Wise, former governor of the state of Virginia. The Union maintained control of the island through the end of the war. But as slaves learned the Union victory, they migrated to the island for freedom with Union forces and protection from the Confederacy. They quickly began to form refugee camps and General Burns declared the refugees contraband of war. In a policy initiated by General Butler at Fort Monroe in 1861 and granted the slaves freedom, the number of freedmen living on the island increased from 250 in a few months to more than 1,000 by the end of 1862. They formed a community, organizing the first free school for black children in North Carolina and churches. The majority converted old Confederate barracks into new homes, which became known as Camp Foster, after one of the generals who had defeated the Confederates. Able-bodied freedmen worked for the Union, especially in construction, such as rebuilding the forts and adding to docks. The army paid them for their work. Horace James was to develop a self-sustaining colony on the island and manage other contraband camps in the state, such as one earlier established at his base. James was to settle the people, give them farming tools, and teach them to prepare for a free community. Roanoke Island Freedmen's Colony was a safe haven for slaves seeking refuge with the Union Army during the Civil War. Most freedmen on Roanoke Island assisted the Union Army, others joined the army as soldiers when the United States Colored Troops were founded and some men worked as spies, scouts, and guides since they knew the area and its waterways well. They completed dangerous and crucial missions for the Union cause. Major General Rush Hawkins, who succeeded Foster in 1863 at the command on the island, ordered the freedmen who enlisted in the Army or worked for military to be paid $10 a month plus one ration and a soldier's allowance of clothing. Of nearly 4,000 North Carolina enlistees, over 150 men were recruited from the Roanoke Island community alone. The Union Army allowed families of black soldiers to live at Roanoke Island as a place of refuge. And those men who were not recruited by the army served as woodcutters, teamsters, longshoremen, carpenters, blacksmiths, and worked in other trades. Many freed women worked as cooks and laundresses at the Union camp. Hawkins provided for payment for the labor of freed women and older boys and allotting supplies to families. Each woman and each boy, age 12 to 16, were to be paid $4 a month plus one ration. In addition, each woman was to receive money equal to a soldier's allowance of clothing while each boy aged 12 to 16 would receive a soldier's allowance of clothing. Each child under 12 would receive one ration and remain with his or her parents. The army allocated small plots of land in the household of the colony and encouraged the freedmen to produce crops for food supplements. Under James' direction, they created fisheries as well to make the island more self-sufficient. The creation of a sawmill and marketing of artesian goods helped the economy of the island. Many adults worked for the Union Army and were given wages and rations as payments for their services. The commander of the island, Colonel Hawkins, who helped preserve the slave families who came to the island for refuge. Ownership of land, practice of a trade, and the ability to live with their families gave the freedmen a taste of citizenship, family life, and hope. Being the Superintendent of Negro Affairs for the District of North Carolina, James believed that a lumber industry would help the rural colony grow and become economically self-sufficient. He had a sawmill built on the island so that lumber could be processed and sold to the government. Other natural resources could be sold elsewhere. His hope was to show that free labor and technology was always superior to the slave system. The sawmill had a 70-horsepower engine, powerful for that time, and venue. The mill was located at Port Point near Union headquarters. A soldier stationed on the island described it in 1864 as a first-class affair like most anything belonging to the government. James intended to arrange for the freedmen to get some of the lumber so they could build sturdier cabins than the traditional split-pine one-room structures. James advocated a new social order in the South to replace slavery with free institutions. The freed people had a variety of skills. Many were artisans who made baskets, shoes, barrels, shingles, and boats, which could be traded or sold. James intended to market both the natural resources and the freedmen's crops, such as cotton corn, turpentine, tar, timber, fish, Oysters, wood, reeds, and grapes to make the colony self-sufficient. While thinking freedmen could have the rights of citizens, he also held that there was a natural stratification of society and African Americans were near the bottom. Education was viewed as the key to prepare the freed people for citizenship. Under the supervision of the Union military, the freedmen built schools, churches, and about 600 cabins. The schools were simple log cabins. Both children and adults were eager to learn to read and write, as most of the slaves had not had any formal education in these skills. Missionaries, mostly unmarried women teachers from New England, were the prime teachers. There was a core group of about seven teachers, but altogether 27 teachers served at the island. In 1863, Elizabeth James arrived. She was a cousin of Reverend James and had experience as a teacher and as the principal of a school in Milford. In February 1864, she founded the Lincoln School in Camp Foster. She noted the students had an intense desire to learn. Ella Ropa opened the Whippy School, which had a roster of 200 students. In March 1864, Samuel Nickerson started the Cypress Chapel School. Although the facilities and supplies were limited in each case, the freedmen's eagerness to learn kept each classroom filled to its utmost capacity. As the number of freedmen grew to 3,900, the colony had difficulty in providing housing. Sanitation suffered on the island as there was no systems to handle it. Infectious diseases began to spread in the crowded conditions when the severe diseases such as smallpox cholera and dysteria, arose. No one at the time understood how they were transmitted, and there were no treatments. The colony began the downward slide from which it was unable to recover the increase in the number of freedmen strained their relationship with the Union military. They had already found that the soil was too poor to support the needed level of cultivation for the population. Rations were reduced in the late stages of the war, which made the inhabitants more desperate. President Johnson's Amnesty Proclamation in 1865 ordered all property seized by the Union forces during the war be returned. The lands used for the contraband camps were returned to their former Confederate owners and all the camps were dismantled. At the Roanoke Island colony, the freedmen were told they had no rights to the plots they had cultivated for years. The U.S. Army helped most freedmen return to the mainland at their choice. Some returned to former plantations and became sharecroppers, tenant farmers, or laborers. After the war, numerous freedmen moved from rural areas to towns and cities to evade white supervision and gain more opportunities as craftsmen. The Roanoke Island Freedmen's Colony was important for educating hundreds of freedmen in literacy, paying adults and older children for their work helping them to establish churches and community and helping preserve their families at a time of war. History, our history, history that we were never taught, but we know it now and we shall pass it on. That music tells me that it's once more that time So I got to get up and get out of here. But before I go, I want to tell you this. We should write our history books to prove that we did have a past and that it was just as worth writing and learning about as any others. We must do this for the simple reason that a nation and a people without a past is a people without a soul. Until next time, it's been my honor.